Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, grab your Bibles, and turn to Acts chapter 15 as we continue in the story of the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some around you that look like this. It's on page 765 in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take this with you. Take the first few pages there printed in color and take it home, read through those at home, and then I'd love to discuss that with you further. Let me encourage you on something I haven't said in a long time. Um, We do put the words on the screen. That's out of convenience, but here's what I would love for you to do. Don't depend on that. I would love for you to have a Bible in your hands uh, and, and be looking at it together as we go through it. I am not going to have a stand as I read the entire chapter today because it's a long passage and I want to cover it all. And, and so we're going to dive in pretty quick and try to get through as fast as I possibly can because there's some really good chili, some award-winning chili back in the fellowship hall waiting on us as soon as we get done to go and have a good time together eating that and some baked potatoes. And so uh, I'm excited about the amount of competition that you guys brought to me today to dethrone me as the chili champion. And we'll see. We actually have some nice prizes for you. I saw, can I say what it is? Am I allowed to say that? There's a really nice looking apron embroidered with the Redemption logo, chili champion, um, that will look really nice when I take it home. Um, (laughs) So as we go into the book of Acts today, hopefully you've turned there by now and you've gotten to it. As you are getting to that, uh, what you'll see uh, is we're going to continue the story here. Um, Now, growing up, I was the kind of kid that always looked for loopholes. That may surprise you because I seem like such a rule-abiding person today. But uh, growing up, I always looked for what did you actually say I couldn't do? And what did you actually say I could do? And if I could find some loophole way around just to even prove that there was a loophole, that's what I would do. So when we uh, found out we were pregnant with our first child, me and my wife, who my wife was a full-on rule follower. Uh, True story, if you ask our parents, if you could not find Audrea when she was a kid, they'd say, don't worry, she's probably sitting down somewhere reading a book. They would have never, ever, ever said that about me. If you didn't know where I was as a kid, you need to start smelling for smoke because something has been played with, taken apart, reconfigured, or lit on fire, either on accident or on purpose, uh, depending on the situation. And so it made me nervous because I thought, here we are about to have children, and 50% of their DNA will come from their rule-abiding, sweet mother, and 50% of their DNA will come from me. And so it's a bit of a toss-up as to how they will behave. And so we started talking through how would we raise our children. Many of you know the social experiment we're doing on our children that we call the Stuart Core Values. I'm going to ask if my kids could come up. I want them to share the Stuart Core Values with you this morning if you've never heard of this. And I'll explain to you why we came up with this. So we're going to brag a little bit on my kids. Is this mic right here on? There we go. So they can use it. All right. You're going to hold it. Y'all going to... Maggie will hold it in the middle. Brothers on each side. There we go. Let's figure it out. There we go. All right. All right. But hold it where all three of you can talk into the mic, Max, not just you. All right. You see the personalities come out a little bit. All right. What are the Stuart core values? The Stuart core values are respect, integrity, self-control, and joyfulness. All right. So why do we do the Stuart core values? 
All right, everybody give it up for my kids. Thank you. I didn't do that to show you just how sweet and wonderful my kids are. That was just an added benefit. I did that because here's the motivation behind why we did that. Because I realized genetically, at some point, these kids are going to be loophole finders like their dad. And I thought, I tried to think through a loophole-proof way of raising our children. Now, we'll see how it works out. Because I knew that if I just said, you're not allowed to do this, you are allowed to do this, at some point they would go, well, you know, Dad never said anything about lighting the dresser on fire. Right? He never brought that up. There was never a rule that he mentioned. And see, I say that because when I was a kid, I lit my dresser on fire. Uh, That one was unintentional with a chemistry set. Uh, I say it was my parents' fault for giving me an adult chemistry set. Shouldn't have done that. But the point was, we thought, what if instead of always talking about the, the what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do, what if we talked about the why? What if we talked about why they need to do things and why they need to not do things? One, we thought possibly that might help our children when we're not around, when there's loopholes. And because, for instance, if my kids were to ever get into a situation where they were to think, well, I wonder if dad would allow this or not. Well, they've got a few questions they can ask. Is it respectful? Is it, does it have integrity? Does that use self-control? Does that pursue and promote joyfulness? And does that bring honor to God and glorify God by bringing me joy? Okay, and joyfulness, right? So on all these things, they ask them those, themselves those questions. And if it doesn't pass the test then they already know whether we've ever talked about it or not that they're not supposed to do it. I want to talk to you today about why knowing your why is important. Maybe even, not maybe even, it is more important than the what. Knowing the why behind what you do is more important than knowing the what. And so as we look at this, you'll see the statement at the top of your bulletin, the the sermon in a sentence is God rebuilds the ruins of our lives to serve his purpose, not our preference. Let's pray. God, as we look at your text this morning, Acts 15, I pray that you would speak clearly through me, that your Holy Spirit would speak louder than me, and that we would be right on task with what you want us to hear. Lord, that it would impact our hearts, increase our affection for you, and therefore increase our obedience. God, I pray that we get this right. Such a crucial moment in the history of the church in the book of Acts. And maybe for someone today, it could be a crucial turning moment for them. Lord, if we come in with our faith in ruins or our marriage in ruins, our finances, our health, our families... Lord, I pray that you would rebuild it for your purpose, not our preferences. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You'll see what I mean uh, later as we continue about God rebuilding the ruins of our lives to serve his purpose and not our preference. Um, First thing you need to know is we've got to be better than loopholes and legalism. As a church... As a people of faith, we've got to be better than just looking for loopholes or adhering to legalism. Really, this is the two extremes that we often go to. 
We either are the people who go, here's the things the Bible said, and here's the things that the Bible didn't say. Or, or we, we get, and in that we get trapped with the idea of just like the, the devil talking to Adam and Eve there in the beginning of the whole story, right? When, what does he say to Eve? Did God, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Did, did God actually say that to you? And, and he, took, he took it and he twisted it, right? right? He was looking for a loophole. And loopholes have been what get us in, in trouble from the very beginning. But then if some of you aren't loophole people, some of you are rule-following type people. And so loopholes aren't the issue for you. The issue for you is I've got to get everything exactly right and you fall into the traps of legalism. And I want to tell you that the faith that Jesus Christ offers to the church, the followers of Jesus Christ, is better than loopholes or legalism. It's a faith built on affection and a relationship with the creator of the universe. It's, it's It's a faith built on the fact that although our relationship was fractured and broken by our own sin, he redeems us and rebuilds us and restores us to be in deep, intimate relationship with him. And our obedience comes out of a motivation of love and joy rather than begrudging obligation. It's better than loopholes and it's better than legalism. But now, one of the things that trips us up if we need to beware, the blind spot of preference. This is one of those things that gets in our way. It's in this story. It's been in the book of Galatians as we were in it. And now it rears its ugly head big time in Acts 15. So they've been on the first missionary journey in Acts 14, and they've made their way, Acts 13, 14, they've made their way back to the church at Antioch where they were commissioned, and let's pick up on the story. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If you remember in the book of Galatians, this goes back to Galatians chapter 2, he said, and then Men causing trouble came. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that's a really nice way of saying it kind of blew up. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses, and order them to keep the law of Moses. Here's what we've got to get. This is a... This is a crux moment in the history of the church. This started out of Judaism, right? Jesus came through the chosen people, the Old Testament. There's a story about God's chosen people. And this Messiah that had been prophesied shows up. Now, granted, the whole time he's here, he seems to stir things up and shake things up. But he was Jewish. And he's a Jewish Messiah promised to the Jewish people. And so when he shows up and then all of a sudden Gentiles start getting saved and they're not following the law of Moses. 
They're eating whatever they want to eat. They're not getting circumcised. They do things culturally completely different than the Jewish people. Understandably, it gets a little confusing and frustrating. And there comes this crux moment that I I don't know that I can overstate the, the impact of the climax of this in the history of the church. This was a fundamental moment that built the church that we know as today. As a matter of fact, if this would have gone differently, our church would not be today what it is. I could promise you. Our church would be entirely different if this day would have gone differently. So let's think about what's happening here. Historically, and this is why we stopped for a little while and went through the book of Galatians. Because the book of Galatians, I'm convinced, some say otherwise, I'm convinced is somewhere in there between chapter 14 and 15. Right In chapter 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul goes to southern Galatia, shares the gospel, plants churches. <clears throat> and then he says in Galatians 2, shortly after that, he gets word that there's this idea spreading around that you have to be circumcised. You have to follow all the laws of Judaism, even if you were a Gentile, that you were really converting to Judaism. And Paul gets really frustrated, as we saw in the book of Galatians. As a matter of fact, there's a point in the book of Galatians where it says that he had a confrontation with Peter. We had, he, had to have, he had to call Peter out because Peter was acting one way until these men of trouble came. And when these men of trouble came that we see in these first five verses, it says in Galatians that now Peter started treating all the Gentiles differently. Even Barnabas, it said, got tripped up. And Barnabas seems like to be the man. Barnabas is so great, so encouraging, so unique that he gets his own nickname, Barnabas. But Paul says that both Peter and Barnabas and maybe even James all get tripped up on this idea. And so they get into, it says, no small dissension. Maybe next time you need marital counseling for me because you and your wife have been yelling and screaming and throwing pots and pans at each other. You could just say, we've had no small dissension in our home. It's a really nice way of saying things blew up a little bit. Here in the early church in Antioch, the same church that in 13 was so unified and praying and the Holy Spirit dropped down and gave them direction already. We're seeing tension here. And so... We need to look at this and think about what it means. We need to realize that the law informed the Jews how to walk in integrity and worship, but it never gave them the power to walk it perfectly. We need to realize that the law reveals our inability to live up to God's perfect righteousness. We need to realize that history and experience prove to us that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means of salvation. Anytime we add something to the work of Jesus Christ and say that this is a co-requirement, all of a sudden it will slowly, it won't be all of a sudden, it will slowly take the lead role. Now, our arguments here today aren't about circumcision. But we have them, don't we? There's a certain kind of music that we prefer or there is a certain style of dress that we prefer, or even a way of worshiping, right? Some people uh, are like me and, and move a lot when they worship. Some people talk to God when they worship out loud. Some people want to stand perfectly still because they feel that that's the most respectful thing to do. And, and if we're honest, sometimes we look at people who worship other than us and we judge them. 
right? If, if you're one of those that is a, a big mover like I am, and you see people standing perfectly still, there's a part of you that goes, do they even love this God they're singing about? Because it doesn't look like it. Because I, I see you at a football game and you look a lot more lively than you do here. You, you show a lot more affection and, and all these things. And I could sit here and get real judgmental about how you are one person at a football game, but a whole other person in church. But I also realize on the flip side that some of you who prefer to stand still and be quiet, look at someone like me and wonder if it's even real. Is, is that even authentic or are you putting on a show? Do you just want people to see you? Right? And we, we come up with these preferences and these ways of doing things. And, and we get upset about things that change that aren't the way that we want or haven't changed yet to be the way that we want. And we've got to beware of preference. Because when we start to make preference more than preference, we make it law, and we say, I can't worship unless it's this. I won't worship there unless it's this. And we do that outside of the essential doctrine of faith of Jesus Christ. We need to be careful. We start adding things to the gospel. So what do we do? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about the way that they resolve this. And I want us to learn some things about how they resolve this issue. One, I think it's incredible that they have this no small dissension, and so they say, hey, let's send some guys to Jerusalem. Because at that point, Jerusalem's still the center of the faith. And so let's send some guys to go talk to the guys in charge. And then there needs to be a council drawn, and we need to make a decision. Right? They realized that in and of themselves, they probably weren't going to come to a conclusion, and they needed some outside help. Realize we should be that humble in every area of our life. Listen to me. <clears throat> if you're struggling financially, and, and you've been doing the same thing the same way for 30 years, and you're still broke and in debt, maybe you should ask somebody to help you. If, if your marriage is, is falling apart, and then maybe you should admit that out loud and let someone from the outside help you. If you are doubting your faith and you're asking all these questions and you're wrestling inside and you're scared to say anything out loud, maybe you should seek outside help and let somebody talk to you. But so often we go, nope, I'm just going to keep doing it the way I'm doing it and hope it changes. And so these guys are humble enough to say, let's, let's bring some people in to talk about this. Let's go to them. And so they send some people. Let's look at some principles of how they do that. They build their life, third point, build your life on the rock. There's a series of questions we have to ask about this issue of circumcision or anything we decide to add to the gospel. Are sinners saved by the sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified when they simply believe, that is, when we flee to Jesus for refuge, when we realize that doing life on our own has brought us nothing but brokenness, and that continuing to do life our way, walking our way, making decisions the way we want to make them, just leads to more brokenness, and we run to Jesus for refuge. We realize that we'll never be enough on our own. And so we turn, we repent, and we believe in Jesus. Is that enough to save someone? 
Or are we saved partly through the grace of Christ and partly through our own good works and religious performance? Now, most of us would answer that we're saved in Christ alone with our mouths. But often with our lives, we answer it a different way, don't we? See, we're convinced that if we behave a certain way, that God will love us more. And if we behave a different way, God will love us less. What you need to understand is God's love is not based on your behavior, and praise God for that fact. Right? That's, that's some of the greatest news in the world. If, if, if God's love was based on your behavior, you'd be in bad shape. Horrible shape. This is the grace of the gospel is that his love for you is not based on how good you measure up because you will never, ever, 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 anytime, ever measure up. You'll never measure up. And so his grace has never been based on your behavior the whole time. So listen to me. Listen to me. If, if you're one of those that's caught in sin, that's stuck, that your life is in ruins, your faith is in ruins, your marriage is in ruins, your whatever, then right now listen to me. God's love for you does not change. But you don't know the doubts I've had in my mind. You don't know the sin I'm struggling with. I don't, but I know the Jesus that died on the cross to pay for those sins. And I know that his love for you is not based on your behavior. And this is where we get struck, we get caught in legalism or loopholes. And we got to be better than that. Our life needs to be built on the rock, like Jesus said at the end of the, New Te- end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, when he talks about if you build your life on these things that I've taught you, it's like building your house on the rock. And when, not if, when the storm comes, it'll withstand whatever the storm brings because your faith will not be built on you and your behavior. It'll be built on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if, if we fall into loopholes and legalism, we end up building our house on the sand. And the sand shifts. And when the wind comes, when the storms come, it'll all fall apart. My mom is a phenomenal artist. And I remember as a kid, we would go to the beach. Going to the beach was a big deal for us because we didn't live near one. And so we would drive about three hours to either Mobile, Alabama or Pensacola, Florida. And we'd go to the beach and my mom would build the most amazing sand sculptures. She, She would... She turned our babysitter into a, a mermaid. She built an alligator. that look, I mean, it looked like an alligator. She built sandcastles. She, she would do these things, unbelievable, amazing art. But when the tide came, you know what would happen? It was gone. It was gone. No matter how great a sculpture my mom would create, the tide would always come wash it away. When you build on the sand... No matter how good it looks, when the storm comes, it'll wash away. We've got to build on the rock. So let's look at how they do that. So they show up in Jerusalem, we've already seen, and there's not only the men who come to Antioch and bring trouble and go to Galatia and bring trouble, there are men within this council when they get there. So what happens? Verse 6, the apostles... And the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, we are an elder-led church. We believe that biblically is the governance that God has given to churches in Scripture. 
This story is a great example of how that can play out. That there have been people in this church already, and there will be more, God willing, that have been willing to submit themselves to the leadership of the elders when they've been caught in sin or struggling. And I want to tell you, I, I've been so pleased. Our, our elders are not judgmental. They're not harsh. They're loving and gracious, and they're here for you. They're, they're God's gift for you to help lead this church and help lead you spiritually. And so with the humility to go to these elders and rulers, they come and it says the apostles, the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, now remember this, this is interesting to me. Remember earlier in Galatians, Paul and Peter had already had this run in about this issue. So if you're Paul and you've, traveled all the way from Antioch, and you want this issue settled. Paul is no calm man. He's a passionate man. You see Peter stand up. There's got to be a little bit of you that goes, boy, I hope he says the right thing. I hope he's not stupid like he was in Antioch. So Peter stands up. Everybody's going to listen to Peter. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, what is he talking about? Well, think back to Cornelius. Remember that story? Peter's sitting there and the sheep drops down and it's got all these animals. God says, kill and eat. He says, God, I would never do that. These are unclean. I've never eaten unclean animals. I won't do it. And God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. And then he tells them, hey, something's about to happen. It's going to be big. And then at the same time, the Holy Spirit speaks to the house of Cornelius and says, send for this man named Peter. And so they come knocking on the door about the same time. Hey, God told us to come to you. And, and they go through this interchange. And eventually Peter packs up, goes to this Gentile house. You've got to realize how big of a deal that is. For a Jewish man to walk into a Gentile home is immediately to be unclean. And so you've got to imagine the fear and the trepidation in Peter's heart as he walks into this man's house. And he's going, all right, Holy Spirit, you told me to come here. What am I supposed to do? So he shares the gospel. Cornelius' house is saved, and he tells he reminds them of this. And he says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. See, sometimes we wonder, how come, we talked about this before, I'm not going to go deep into it, how come at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, there's this idea of fire falling down and speaking in tongues. And we've talked about how that's the confirmation of the Holy Spirit falling on the new church. But then we get to the Gentiles and they're speaking of tongues in that house too. And why? This is why. Because of Acts 15. Because on this day, they would need to know. And then in Samaria, when the Holy Spirit dropped there, they would need to know outside of themselves, outside of their preferences, outside of their cultural biases, they would need confirmation from the Holy Spirit that these people were God's people too. And so Peter reminds them, you remember that when that happened? And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. How did he cleanse their hearts? By faith. Not by works, not by circumcision, not by being Jewish, but by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke 
on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. You get what he's saying there? He's reminding you of the trap of legalism. See, I get why legalism is attractive somewhat. It's not attractive to me because I'm a natural rule breaker. But I understand even the, the draw of a list. Sometimes when you get asked to do a task and it's unclear how to follow in procedure and get it done, it's really comforting to have a list. Some men are known stereotypically to not be instruction readers. I am an instruction reader because I realize that not only am I ADHD, but I'm highly creative. And highly creative is a good thing until you're trying to follow the specific instructions of how something is supposed to be built. And I think outside of the box. And so I start putting things in places that make sense to me. And it never turns out the way it's supposed to be. And so I learned a long time ago, it's a good idea for me to have instructions. And so I look at the instructions. And I get the appeal of in following God in faith, when we hear the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We hear that and we go, that's great principles, but how do I do that? What do I do? So it's comforting and it's easy if we can have a list. Well, you wake up every morning, you have what we call a quiet time, and then you go throughout your day and you try not to cuss, you don't drink, you be nice to people, you give money to the poor guy on the corner, and, and then you go to church on Wednesday, you go to church on Sunday, you serve in some capacity, and you be nice to your neighbors. And you've done the Christian life. And if we're honest, many of us have let that define what it means to be a good follower of Christ. Problem is, just like every other thing that we do in our own strength, that'll only lead to more brokenness and emptiness. And then, and then you hear people say, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. I've been so faithful to Him for so long. I have no peace. I have no joy. Have you been faithful to Him? Or have you been faithful to a list? Or you go for the loopholes. Okay, so all I got to do is love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love my neighbor as myself. I love God. I really do. And I love my neighbor. Done. Now I can do whatever else I want to do. And we go about our lives doing whatever we want to do. And we think, as long as I love God, love my neighbor, it's all good. That's what Jesus said. And when we realize that there is so much more to it and so much less, the simplicity of the fact that we are saved, we are cleansed by faith. And that faith leads to affection. And that affection leads to a desired obedience for the pursuit of joy. So we see that a threefold work here. We see that God chose to speak through Peter to the Gentiles. We see that God gave the Holy Spirit. And we see that God purified their hearts through faith. We see four times in this story the idea of us and them, or we and they, the separation. But we also see that God makes no distinction between us and them, no matter what your us and them is. Whether your us and them is political, economic, racial, denominational, gender, all of the above. 
There is no real division between us and them. Grace, grace and faith put us all on level ground, and that level ground is sinners in desperate need of a Savior. All Christians, all Christians walk in their faith with a limp. All Christians have a limp. None of us walk perfectly. We all have a limp as we walk in still needing to grow in our faith. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent after Peter's words. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So, so now we have two forms of authority. Church authority, personal testimony slash experience. Listen, these things are good and we need to go to those. We should turn to the authority and tradition of church. We should. And we should turn and learn from our personal experiences, our testimony. But those are not the ultimate authority. Those are not what make the decision. Those are good, but they're not what make the decision. We've been doing this on our Wednesday night community group for adults. We've been walking through the Baptist faith and message. And one of the things we've continually said over and over in there is... It's not so much that class about saying you've got to believe the Baptist faith and message. Although I think it's written fairly well. The idea that there isn't even, we're not even focusing on what you believe. We're focusing on why you believe it. See, sometimes we have right beliefs built on false premises. Here's what I mean by that. Some of us believe certain things about who God is, who we are, and what church is, because simply, it's all we've ever known. Our pastors growing up have all told us the same thing and the same ideas. Our experiences have all been the same everywhere we've been in this concept, whatever that may be. And so in our minds, because that's the way it's always been, or that's what we've always been told, then that's truth. And here's the problem with that. It may be truth but you're building it on a false premise, right? So let's take, for instance, the phrase, once saved, always saved. Anybody ever heard that before? You can raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. So often we believe that phrase because, one, it's concise, it rhymes, it makes sense. We've heard it our whole lives. Once saved, always saved. But here's the question. Do we believe that because we've been taught that phrase our whole life or because as we've studied the scriptures, we've found that truth to be revealed in the scriptures? Because you won't find that phrase, once saved, always saved. It's not in here anywhere. Now, there is a concept of the fact that when you are in God's hand, adopted as his child, that nothing can remove you from his hand. That's in the Bible. These ideas are in the Bible. The phrase once saved, always saved isn't. Here's where it becomes error. Follow me. So is the concept in simplicity, once saved, always saved, true and communicated in Scripture? Yes and no. It is that idea that if you're saved, you'll always be saved. That idea is clear in Scripture. Debated by some, but I think clear in Scripture once you study Scripture as a whole. Here's where we err. So that's a true belief on a false premise. Once saved, always saved. Here's how that always carries out. Well, when I was five years old at VBS, somebody asked me to pray a prayer, so I prayed a prayer, and then I got baptized. And then, man, I went and just turned to the world and, and was a horrible kid. And by the time I was 13, I was stealing stuff and drinking and partying and ended up in prison and 
And, um, and I never turned back to the church. Um, but I know because I prayed that prayer when I was five years old, I'm saved. This is where the, this is where a false premise can be dangerous. Right? Because we build it on just a phrase and just something people say. When, when in reality, we have, to, we have to realize if we were truly saved, then yes. Once truly saved, always saved. Once our life is Jesus's. Now, does that mean that we won't backslide? Does that mean we won't do dumb things? Absolutely not. Praise God. If you could lose your salvation, you would. You would have already. I promise you. By the same day you got saved, you'd lose your salvation. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. And so praise God that, that, that I, I, I've had some dumb seasons in my life where I was still in Jesus' hand. Praise God I've had some moments where I decided to go on my own way and he said, but you're still mine. Right? You're still mine. His love never changed for me. And so we see here the wisdom of this council. They hear from a church authority, Peter. They're about to hear from James. They hear from Paul and Barnabas, personal testimony, personal experience, of, and, and from Peter even, of seeing Gentiles get saved, no different than them. But now we go to the Scriptures. James, Jesus' half-brother, stands up. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Simon Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And look at this, this phrase right here in verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. I want to read that again. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So we heard from Peter, but here's the good news. Scripture affirms what he said. Do you notice they didn't conclude this meeting? We'll get to the conclusion here in a second. They didn't conclude this meeting until they heard from the Word of God. In our membership covenant, one of the top things in the membership covenant says that the Scriptures will be the arbiter of all things at all times. The final arbiter. Meaning, if there's a disagreement in this church, that just like we see in Acts 15, we ought to hear personal testimony. We ought to hear dissenting sides. They let the Pharisaical Jews speak and share that they think that people ought to be circumcised. We ought to hear that. We ought to hear personal testimony. We ought to hear from elders and church authorities. But ultimately, the elders should not be making final decisions on their own. And praise God, our elders don't. We go to the Word of God as the final authority. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. So then James says, Therefore, my judgment, according to the word of God, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't make them be circumcised. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now that sounds like a really weird list. We'll get to that in a second. From the ancient generations, Moses 
has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in the Sabbath in the synagogues. So again, I just want you to understand the three, the three things they look to to make this decision. Really four, they let everybody express their opinion. So they hear from both sides. They hear from personal testimony, from authorities in the church. But ultimately, the decision is decided off of the word of God. This is a pattern you could do in your marriage. This is a pattern you could do at work, with your friends, with any conflict, disagreements that arise. Let everybody speak their peace. Let someone in authority, spiritual authority, speak into it. Share personal testimony. Look at your experiences. But ultimately, let the word of God affirm what you should do. So they tell them we should send a letter. Fourth point. Our last ones are fast. Be a missionary wherever you are. I'm not going to read the whole letter here in 22 through 35, but I'm going to summarize what happens. They say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write a letter that's going to go to all these Gentile churches, and we're going to let them know that they do not have to be circumcised in order to be followers of Christ, but we are going to encourage them to avoid food that's been offered to idols or that's got blood in it, it's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, why would they add these things when they're trying to say that it's just the gospel, that they're cleansed, their hearts are cleansed by faith? Because, see, they want to challenge them to be missionaries where they are. See, James gives the reason. At the end of his thing, he says, For from ancient generations Moses had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. They realize these Gentile believers are being grafted in amongst a group of believers who are Jewish. How are they supposed to table with these people? How are they supposed to sit and eat with these people? If they're bringing all these foods that are greatly offensive to Jewish people, that make them feel unclean. See, the the beauty and the freedom of the grace of Jesus Christ is Jewish people can still be Jewish. And they can still follow the Jewish law, understanding they're under the grace of Jesus Christ because it's their culture, because it's what they grew up in. And that's okay. As long as they're not thinking that that earns them favor, as long as they're not thinking that brings them salvation, as long as they understand their salvation comes through Jesus Christ on the cross, resurrected from the dead, that's it, then yes. And that's what's happening. And so they're saying, look, go back amongst these Jewish people. You don't have to be circumcised. You have freedom. But you also have freedom to be a missionary. And while you live amongst these people and eat amongst these people, don't eat in ways that are going to make it where they can't eat with you. Don't live in ways that makes it more difficult for them to come to Christ. Be a missionary where you are. This is what we've got to understand. Wherever you are, you are a missionary. Wherever you live in that neighborhood, you are a missionary. Wherever you work amongst that people, amongst that community, you are a missionary. Wherever you go to church amidst the community of that church, you are a missionary. And you got to think like a missionary. When we think like a missionary, we realize a couple of things. One, we avoid legalism by not adding anything to the gospel as a requirement. We don't add anything as a requirement. We also avoid loopholes. We be a missionary and realize that there are certain things, yes, I have. Do, do they have freedom to eat whatever they want? Yes. Paul goes into that later in the book of Romans and other writings, 1 Corinthians. He'll talk about the freedom they have. But he also says... But if it's going to cause your brother to stumble, if it's going to to create a situation where you can't fellowship with this person, 
then just be a missionary. If we were to go together to a foreign country, before we went, before we took you on a mission trip to a foreign country, we would talk to you about the culture, right? And you would want to understand what is culturally offensive there. Now, do you have freedom to do it differently? Yeah. There there are hot, hot countries I've taken mission teams on where all women wear long pants all the time or long skirts, long dresses all the time. And all of our ladies are like, I want to wear shorts. I go, do you have the freedom in Christ to wear shorts? Absolutely. Do you have freedom on this mission trip to wear shorts? No. Because we're missionaries, right? And we got to understand the culture that we're in. When you're in a culture, understand the culture that you're in and be a missionary. This council to respect dietary restrictions was only intended to demonstrate love and respect for Jewish Christians. And we see by the response of the Gentile believers that they respond with joy. They get this letter, they send Silas and they send uh, Barsabbas as, as authorities of, of the council to go and help read the letter and, and tell, the, tell this story. And when the Gentile believers hear this, they, they respond with joy. They respond with understanding. Praise God, we don't have to be circumcised. But yeah, we can be missionaries where we are. Last thing in the story is beware of yourself. So this was great. This was a huge victory for the church. This whole council went great. It went, Paul probably went in nervous and he came out like, man, so great. We've got good news. So he gets real excited and he goes to his boy Barnabas that they've done their first mission trip together. And he goes, let's do it again. Verse, 5, verse 6, uh, 36. Now Barnabas wanted to take uh, with them John called Mark. I don't know if you remember, but on the first missionary journey, that didn't go good, right? They were going about halfway, and then it just says John Mark left them. He abandoned them. So Paul tells Barnabas, let's go back to everywhere we've been. Let's share this great news of the freedom they have in Christ. Let's check on the churches and strengthen them. And Barnabas goes, great, let's bring my cousin John Mark. And Paul goes, "Mm, no, I don't want to take anybody that has abandoned me. I can't trust him. Verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to work. It's a really nice way of saying, I don't trust that fool because he left us stranded last time. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus and out of history. We don't hear from Barnabas again. And Paul chose Silas, who had come with him in the letter, and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. After this great victory in the church, there became dissension amongst even the best of friends. That happens. That happens. Beware of yourself. This is why I tell you to be a missionary wherever you are. Philippians 2, right? says, look not to your own interest, but consider the interest of others above your own. For this is the mind of Christ. Christ lived that way. Christ lived in such a self-sacrificial way. And he's called us to do the same thing. Beware of yourself. Sometimes it's amongst who we're most comfortable 
that will let our depravity show the most. We, we tend to behave around people that we don't know well because we don't want them to judge us. But when we're with somebody that we've been through a lot with, which Paul and Barnabas have been through a ton together, we tend to be a little more open and we'll let the ugly come out. Beware of yourself. Now, the good news is, good news is God can use it. Do I think God intended them to break up? I don't think so. I think their selfishness of not being able to come to a conclusion together. Should they have taken John Mark or should they not have taken John Mark? I don't know. I don't know. But I know the good news is now we've got two mission teams instead of one. Right? And they're going different directions and God ends up using it. And so even in the midst of our difficulty, the beautiful thing is we can't mess up God's plans. Praise God. That even when we fail and we do something stupid, we can't mess up God's plans. All right, in conclusion, the last thing. Be the rebuilt ruins that claim the word for his name. This is what you do with this. So I just want to, the context, I want to go back to the passage that James talked about. James took them back to the prophet Amos. And he's in the prophet Amos, and he's talking to them about God being upset with his people. See, his people have done things they weren't supposed to do, and the whole thing had kind of fallen apart. And God lets them know a few things. One, yes, you're in ruins. So if you came here today and your faith, your marriage, your relationships are in ruins, God knows. And he's not going to pretend like they're not. Yeah, it's in ruins. The good news is God can rebuild it. But he rebuilds it for his purpose not your preference. When he rebuilds your ruins, when you take your ruined life to God and you lay it on the altar before the feet of Jesus Christ, whether this be salvation or this be you just coming back to the cross as a living sacrifice, and you bring that ruins of your life and you lay it down and you say, Jesus, rebuild me, you need to understand he's going to rebuild you for his purpose, for his mission, not for your preferences. See, we want Jesus to rebuild us the way we want Jesus to rebuild us. When we come, we come with conditions. We have a contract. We have have negotiations. All right, God, I want you to rebuild my life, but it needs to look like this. When Jesus rebuilds your life, he's going to rebuild it better than you could imagine, but he's going to rebuild it for him. So here's what I would encourage you to do today. Recognize that your life is in ruins. Recognize that you walk with a limp. Recognize that you are in need. I promise you this, there is some aspect of your life that is in ruins. How do I know that? Because you're human and you're breathing. Right? And so there's some aspect of your life, your your faith, you're, you're in doubts, your marriage, your relationships, you're caught in some sin. Bring those ruins to the feet of Jesus. And ask him to rebuild them. But be willing to let him rebuild them for his purposes, not your preference. Let's pray.